Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, we're learning about the UBS Collectives, an innovative social impact initiative that connects UBS's philanthropic clients on issues that matter most to them. Led by UBS's philanthropy services team, UBS Collectives will help clients combine their expertise and mobilise their capital to fund initiatives that address themes like child protection, climate change, health and education-related issues. On the programme today, we're lucky to be joined by Tom Hall, Global Head of Philanthropy Services at UBS. Tom Hall, thanks so much for being with us on the programme today. Let me kick things off by asking you, well, tell us what your story is actually, Tom, first. Remind us of your background, first of all. I've been working in philanthropy for almost the last 20 years. I can't quite believe it's that long, but I think I've got the grey hair to prove it now. Initially in the non-profit world before moving to UBS about eight years ago. And really the story of my career is I've I've genuinely had the privilege, both in the non-profit world and exponentially at UBS, of working with a growing trend of passionate people who are seeking to use the wealth that they've created, often, you know, many factors more than they ever intended to create off the back of, you know, having cool ideas and setting up businesses and and having impact with those businesses to then use some of the wealth they've created off the back of those to try and address some of the pressing social and environmental problems. And me and my team, there's almost 85 of us in our global philanthropy offering. Our job is essentially to support that group of people, our clients, or maybe those who aren't yet our clients, it doesn't really matter, people who want to use their wealth to have impact, to maximise that impact and to to get the most out of every single dollar, Swiss franc, pound. I was speaking to somebody from from Ghana today, so I think that's Quatcha, so that they they can help as many people uh, or, or solve as many issues as they can with each and, you know, every philanthropic investment that they make. Well, yeah, that's super interesting. And I wanted to talk about this notion of collective philanthropy. And we'll come to the UBS collective specifically in a second. But just to dig a bit deeper into what you've just said, those introductory remarks, which I thought were really instructive, Tom, you know, what what is the power? Is the idea here that with those partnerships that you've mentioned, philanthropists and their fellow philanthropists and your team as well can not just model and replicate successful solutions but really deliver them on a on a new scale is that kind of at the heart of this collective philanthropic approach absolutely so i I think what we've seen over the last kind of 20 years is this emerging trend of exponential wealth creation often from you know, highly ambitious entrepreneurs who then look at big global problems and they go, well, I want to solve these. I don't want to just touch the sides of them. I actually want to solve them. And you look at something like, I don't know, global education, there's something like 250 million kids who can't read, despite the fact they're in school at the age of nine. Setting up another school for a thousand children, which would be the typical philanthropic approach, which is within the remit of one philanthropist, is a nice thing to do for those thousand children, but it's just not touching the sides of the of the big global issue. You know, look at you know the COP. We're talking about the huge problem of, of climate change. You know, we 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 all need to come together. The only way that we're going to solve issues is in partnership. And and for philanthropists in particular, they they need to recognise the the fact that philanthropy alone can't solve problems. You know, no philanthropist on their own can solve an issue generally on their own. And even in, 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 in combination that they can't solve issues using philanthropy on their own. Uh, j- just to give you a couple of, of stats that and this is something I say to everyone when we meet them. 
all of the world's issues, which were you know usefully encapsulated for us in the UN Sustainable Development Goals about three years ago, have been costed out to to require an additional thirty trillion dollars between now and twenty thirty. Total global philanthropy today is about two trillion. We think it will grow to five to seven. But, you know, you don't have to be a genius to work out that even seven isn't 30. So, so what does that mean? What it means is, is that we shouldn't give up. It's not like, well, philanthropy doesn't work. Let's give up. No. What it means is that we have to use this precious resource of philanthropic capital in the most strategic way possible. And that means identifying methodologies, innovations, investment solutions that have the potential to not only solve issues in an evidence-based way, but actually have the potential to go to scale. Because without scale, you're not going to address these big issues that, that I've just, just referenced. And of course, you know, if, if you're going to try and find these kinds of opportunities that have the potential to, to solve issues at scale in an evidence-based way, what you need to do is you need to work in partnership. You need to crowdfund resources into the right ones, not dissipate your resources across a plethora of things that, that maybe have impact at a micro level, but don't really add up to anything. And, and that's why we, we very confidently say, essentially, without collaborating, without working in partnerships, without working collectively, there's no chance that we're going to address any of these pressing social and environmental issues. Right. Well, that, I guess, brings us very elegantly to this exciting moment in which we find ourselves right now. What then is the, the collectives, Tom? You've sort of set the, set the scene for us very elegantly. Explain to us then what, how the collectives picks up the strands that you've identified, draws them together and offers to deliver, you know, that coherence that you're, you're, you, you and your colleagues are constantly looking for. So I think what we've tried to do with the collectives, and by the way, you know, we have our three collectives, which we're really excited about, and we, we will add more. But there's, there's been a growing trend in collective philanthropy over the last three to five years, I'd say, where increasingly philanthropists have become aware that unless they pool resources together, then they're not going to create these kind of catalytic moments to solve issues. And, and what we've tried to do in our collectives, where we've focused on various different issues from climate through to issues around uh, child protection and you know really looking at how we we ensure that the most vulnerable children in the world can can fulfill their potential um, through to how we can use resources the most most efficiently and really think about how do we deploy philanthropic capital in the most catalytic way we we've specifically selected topics that we think are both of interest to a sufficient number of clients because obviously the nature of collective is you have to appeal to you know a group of people so that they're willing to pool resources we've then combined those topics with a learning journey. So actually, in many ways, what's been of interest to the clients that we've persuaded to join us and trust us on going on these journeys of, of collective philanthropy is they want to learn. You know, so take our climate collective. I think we have eight families who've all committed a million dollars each to pool resources into a specific program that we hope will have a catalytic impact around nature-based solutions using investments in, in mangrove preservation, which has a four or five times uh, the effect of carbon absorption than the same acreage of, of trees, as an example. Um, but try and do that in a way that you can actually develop a business model that can eventually be invested in and then scaled. So, so, so you've got this intentionality around this group of people putting whatever that is, $8 million. So again, not a huge amount of money, but, but a lot more than any individual one of them would have put in on their own into climate. And many of these clients had never invested in climate before. So as well as investing, and we often like to say that one of the best forms of philanthropy is do tanking, not think tanking. So don't just talk about what works. Start 
trying things, you know, within the confines of an experiment where you're really testing what, what works and course correcting. So, so that process is a learning journey in and of itself. But at the same time, because that program will be funded for, for, for three to five years, we've got an opportunity to then do really deep educational content on what does good strategic philanthropy look like? What in the specific topic area of climate, good climate philanthropy look like? What are the issues? Where can philanthropy move the dial more than, say, mainstream investment? And how can we deploy resources in the most effective way? With the intent being that not only will that $8 million hopefully identify a pathway to scale mangrove preservation in a sustainable way that that allows people to have a livelihood, say, through sustainable aquaculture, but also generate revenue for, for them from, say, carbon credits, for preserving the mangroves in those communities, which is hugely important for things like flood defence as well. Not only will we arrive at that model just from this one project, we will also graduate eight philanthropists, many of whom are billionaires, to be real experts in the space so they can go on to replicate similar interventions all over the world. And presumably, therefore, they also become real advocates for the issues they're most passionate about, Tom, which is a, a another big sort of win-win. I should mention here, so you mentioned the support for, for vulnerable children, which obviously is under the sort of aegis of the, the Transform Collective. You've talked already a little about the Climate Collective. Just a note on Accelerate, the third of the initial three that you've mentioned. Just tell us briefly, Tom, what, what the Accelerate Collective, uh, what, what's that all about? Yeah, so the Accelerate Collective is actually probably the most exciting in the sense that it applies to almost every social and environmental issue, which is actually how do we drive scale? And really, if you want to scale an effective solution, you need to create a pathway for it to become investable. And Accelerate is really touching on this theme of social finance. And the role of social finance is essentially to use philanthropic capital in a way that corrects for for market failure so that you can actually ultimately build a market. So I mentioned that earlier in my career, I actually worked in microfinance. Microfinance started something like 30 years ago in Bangladesh, and it was effectively subsidised for almost 25 years with philanthropic dollars until suddenly uh, people realised that this was a good investment. And then we had hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into microfinance institutions around the world as investment capital. So that's a classic example, really, of where philanthropy deliberately creates the space for that investment to to come later. Uh, Another great example is probably clean energy or green energy, right? I was I was hearing throughout kind of some of the COP reporting that you know solar panels have become a hundred times cheaper over the last 30 years. And and those initial early adoptions, that innovation, that patient capital, is something that you know philanthropy played a role there. Obviously investment played a role. But we can be much more intentional about making that happen. And that's essentially what we've been doing in the Accelerate Collective is is working with our clients to specifically deploy philanthropic capital like an investment, but with the intention of really trying to drive impact for the most vulnerable. And one of the spaces where we think you can get the most impact for the very poorest is by shaping the way that public money is spent. And public money is often spent on activity base. So, so you know, typically, whether it's in Liberia or in, in the UK, government budgets are allocated usually to the cheapest supplier of services. And then they'll pay for those contracts. And if something goes wrong, they might change the supplier two, three years later. One of the big paradigms that we've been working on for the last 10 years is this idea of outcomes purchasing, whereby instead of government paying for activities and hoping they work, you can actually pay for results only 
after they've been validated, which means government spends exactly the same money, but it only spends it when they know a child's being educated or when they know a life has been saved. And these kind of contracts, outcomes purchasing contracts, have been growing exponentially over the last decade. It's probably The market's probably worth about $2 billion. And specifically what the Accelerate cohort are doing, 20 clients committing half a million dollars each, is they've put catalytic philanthropic capital into a first-of-its-kind private equity fund, whereby their $20 million of philanthropic capital has taken a first-loss position in investing in a fund that's worth $100 million, which will invest in about 20 outcomes contracts in things like education in Sierra Leone, healthcare in South Africa, the kinds of places that, that ordinary pension funds couldn't invest because it would be deemed to be too risky. But because these philanthropists have taken a first loss position with their, with their $20 million worth of philanthropic capital, it's actually made it you know, a safer investment for, for the other $80 million worth of investment capital to join in this structure and for the first time ever invest in, in, in these kinds of contracts whereby they only get repaid, they only get their, their capital back with a return if impact is validated by an external third party. So if a child has definitely learned, then the money comes back. It's, it's hugely exciting stuff. And uh, coming back to that whole pathway to scale, the instrument itself, the, the, the idea itself is highly scalable because potentially you can imagine the, you know, the, overall, uh, the overall market, as I said, is about 2 billion, but that's just a rounding error compared to how much governments are spending each and every year on public goods and services. So we think the, the potential for this concept of outcomes purchasing to scale in and of itself is, is vast. And you know, these philanthropists involved in Accelerate are really at the, the, you know, the, not quite the starting blocks because it's been going for 10 years, but pretty early stages of, of the scaling phase of this kind of thinking. It's hugely exciting and that innovation, that boldness, and you can already see from your remarks, Tom, you know, the potential for enduring systemic change to things that many had said, you know, were not changeable or tackleable, certainly in the short term. That does prompt me, though, to ask you, in terms of the scale of the ambition, that is clear. What about the involvement of other stakeholders? And actually implicit in everything you've said, Tom, you know, there are all of these others, whether it's nation states or, uh, you know, governments who are spending public money. This is a, a broader mobilisation. Is it is part of the ambition that you and your colleagues have, and indeed those families, uh, family offices and other investors that you're working with on this? Are they interested in trying to get a broader mobilisation, get those other stakeholders, including maybe some who've dragged their feet a little on these issues, getting them involved as well? Is is that too ambitious? Is Are we putting the cart before the horse or is that part of it? No, that, that that's absolutely part of it. And you have to have that intentionality. So we, when we often like part of the learning curriculum for the collectives, I was doing it yesterday with a group of clients from the US, is you have to think at a systems level. So if you want to solve any issue, you have to think about how... What role does government play in in your potential solution? What role does the market play? And what role does the community play? And if you don't address your intervention at all three levels, it won't be successful. So you have to think about that from the outset and and start planning for working with those groups. And, and, you know, it might be that when you first start and you go to government and you say, we're doing a pilot in your uh, you know, in a remote province of your area for a million dollars, they roll their eyes and think it's completely irrelevant. But when you turn around three years later and say, oh, that pilot that we did proved with Harvard doing the external analysis in a randomised control trial, so the highest quality evidence possible, that for the same money that you're spending, we can educate people 
400% more efficiently and they get more results, they suddenly sat up and take, take notice so that when you do the next scale pilot of 200,000 children, they're at the table. And actually, it's about thinking both in terms of the immediate intervention, but also of the five to 10 year cycle that it takes to change systems. And if you have that level of intentionality behind any intervention, actually, we've seen things go to scale relatively quickly. You know, in my, in my time at UBS, I've seen multiple models become the global paradigm as an answer to a certain solution. So, you know, seven years ago, we were approached by a group of people who said, we want to uh, train people who've got a reading age of an eight-year-old to be frontline community health workers in their, in their local community because we think that they can deliver healthcare. You know, these are, these are people with absolutely no education who'd never worked before, but we piloted it. You know, why not? They, they have no access to healthcare now. Let's try it. And in a, in a small pilot, $200,000, I think it cost, they showed that by training people to be frontline community health workers, treating diarrhea, malaria, giving people inoculations, they could reduce infant and maternal mortality by 50%. Cut a long story short, that model, community health workers, scaled by the World Bank and the Liberian government in that first country, and is now essentially a paradigm across you know, much of the developing world for how we reach the billion people who don't have access to healthcare. So, you know, we we passionately believe that when you bring the right type of capital, philanthropic capital that can bear risk, whether it's going in the form of a grant or a loan, it, it depends on the model it's investing in, but can also be intentional about deliberately trying to influence markets and economies, then it has a potential for scale. The one factor that shouldn't be forgotten, and this is critical, is to make sure it is genuinely community embedded in the community community led that people own it because if if you don't do that then it's then it's you know it it can be seen as you know almost a little bit kind of a phrase in 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 our like development barbie you know people flying in and trying to impose solutions on people that doesn't work you have to you have to uh, capacity build you know local organizations local entrepreneurs to take ownership themselves and when you do that in combination with really thinking about market and government, you, you end up with, with amazing catalytic uh, solutions to issues that ultimately can become investable as well. Tom Hall, thanks for your time and for sharing some terrific insights today. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about the UBS Collectives. Head to UBS.com and search UBS Collectives. Listen again and find out more about this programme in the meantime at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24.